We trust our project managers. We don't need a separate PMO office because we know our project managers can step into those roles. And we know that the people around them understand that leadership can come from anywhere in the organization. You can be a leader if, you know, no matter who you are, you take charge. And, and that's part of the reason why in early in the book, Simon said to me, like, you're the CEO of your life. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show. Today, we have got two expert, best-selling authors with us to discuss their new book. It's called There Is No Box, A Practical Guide for the Relatable Leader. And yes, it's got one of our favorite words around here on the show, practical, right there in the title. So our guests today are Marissa Cleveland and Simon Cleveland. And with the same last night name, you might ask, are they related? And Simon, Marissa, are you related? We're husband and wife. Yes. All right. <laughs> there it is. Uh, so for long time listeners of the show, they know Karen and I are also married. And so it's a, just a treat to have a, a married uh partner couple who did the work and her writing and all of that together. So with more than two decades in the education and publishing industries, Dr. Marissa Cleveland is adamant about supporting efforts toward the betterment of the human condition. She's the executive director for the Seymour Agency, a Hodges University Board of Trustees member, and a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author, and holds a doctor of education in organizational leadership. Simon Cleveland lectures at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, so Johns Hopkins, you're just right down the road from where I'm recording here in uh, near Columbia, Maryland, then, and uh, Georgetown University. He has over 20 years of experience in the fields of corporate and government leadership, higher education administration, project management, information systems, and technology management. He's worked in various leadership roles for organizations like MD Anderson, Cancer Center, the Department of Homeland Security, NASA, Accenture, America Online, Georgetown University, and uh, many others. And Dr. Cleveland holds a PhD as well, this time in information systems. So we've got not only co-authors, not only married, but they're both doctorates. So we've got a couple of very intelligent, smart people here who have walked the talk and are going to help us with relatable leadership. Simon, Marissa, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. Uh, our pleasure. So I want to learn just a little bit more about you before we jump in. So I want to uh, share the opening of your book. I just loved the, the opening here. And what you say is, during childhood, we're told to color inside the lines. In our 20s, we're asked to think outside the box. But what if there is no box? And you conclude leadership is not a trait. Leadership is a lifestyle. And so with that opening to the book, I want to actually have you take us back, maybe to childhood, maybe not that far, but if each of you could share with us, what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? And I'll let whoever would like to go first, you can take us there first. What's your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? We'll do ladies first then. <laughs> um, I, I heard you ask this on a bunch of other podcasts that I watch and I didn't- Every, every guest. I didn't stop to think about how I would articulate this, but uh, one part in the book that I mentioned is when I was a teacher, I didn't realize that I was actually a role model until somebody told me. And so that question kind of brings me back to when I was a gymnast, I guess, if you're talking about childhood. So I was around like 12 when I got to help 
one of the other instructors with our little tiny tot gymnast class. And I remember, you know, if we're looking at leadership as, you know, an influence relationship with people who follow you, I was 12 and I was telling them to do an exercise this way and that way, and they were following me. And so I guess that was my earliest time when I was like, oh, I can tell other people what to do and <laughs> they'll do it. You know, they'll follow me um, oh. for whatever reason. And <laughs> yeah, that's a powerful moment of realization, isn't it? <laughs> All right. And how about you, Simon? Um, I go back to uh, one of the more memorable experiences I had. And this was uh, in my early college days when I stepped into the role of a um, leader of a, a college club called Society for Advancement of Management. My undergraduate education is in uh, one of my uh, majors is management. So I was passionate about this topic and um, stepping into that uh, particular uh, leadership uh, role, I was able to understand what uh, the other members were interested in doing with their degrees and some of their career aspirations and uh, kind of set a vision to um, advance those types of uh, passions that they had. I took the club and my members to um, a conference, a conference at the Harvard Business School uh, one term and everybody was excited, but we all collaborated together on collecting funds and selling things in order to um, uh, fund our trip. And it was, it brought us together and it created that whole desire in me to really kind of influence people uh, in, in ways that can advance their personal uh, growth and, and aspirations. So that's probably the most memorable one I have from my early, early days as a leader. Oh, I so enjoy both of those, those stories and the the moments of influence, the moments of seeing what other people are interested in and bringing that together uh, and the collaboration that came out of that. Powerful, powerful things. And uh, and really help us get into the Relatable Leader here. There is no box, a practical guide for the Relatable Leader. Talking with Dr. Marissa Cleveland, Dr. Simon Cleveland. Uh, so let's start with this notion of a Relatable Leader, Relatable Leadership. What are we talking about with Relatable Leadership? Let's start with a practical definition. Um, well, it's a couple of different things. It's how you are, um, how you relate to situations and how you relate to people. And so it's, it, we always, well, what we found and discussing with different people is that relatability improves a leader's sense of common ground with others. So the more experiences, it's really grounded in experiential learning. The more experiences you can get, the less, the more comfortable you'll be in in other situations. And then the more comfortable you are, the more comfortable other people will be around you. Because I don't know too many people who want to put themselves in uncomfortable situations like every day, all the time. And, you know, those, those experiences make you be able to understand where you are, where the other person's coming from, all the five strategies to become more relatable. And so relatable leadership is about understanding those two facets of one being have being relatable and two, having other people be able to be relate, having other people be able to relate to you. All right. So when you say the ability to relate to other people or people relate to you and how we're relating to situations, walk us through what we're talking about when we say relate to it's obviously it has that notion of being in relationship with, but if you were to unpack that for us a little bit, what are we really talking about? What does it look like? This is a good question. When we were envisioning the book, um, the very first thing that um, 
we were really kind of uh, discussing a lot, Marissa and I, was in order for us to relate to others, we need to understand, first of all, who we are and what, where do we begin, where do we start from? Um, so it's a, a very big concept in our book about um, understanding our starting lines. Uh, and once we understand ourselves, we'll be able to understand others better. Uh, but it can't happen without spending time reflecting on who we are, um, how do we start in this life? How do we start in our careers, in our education? Um, so that when we understand ourselves better, we'll be able to ask the right questions and uh, get to know our uh, and the individuals that we are communicating with better so that we can relate to their situation. Um, so the very, very first topic that um, every um, emerging leader or an existing leader, uh, uh, whoever they are, whatever they are in their life cycle of being leaders, is to make sure that they really understand um, what were their starting lines, what are their starting lines, and based on these starting lines, they can find these touch points, if you wish, uh, to relate to uh, others. Uh, but but the understanding that personal starting line leads to the next question, which is, what are the starting lines of others, and then how can we find these connections between each other? And we can expand on these so that we can establish that kind of a trusting relationship because it obviously trust is a very, very big factor in becoming a relatable leader is establishing that uh, bond um, and um, rapport with others so that you can obviously influence them and then get influenced by them as well. Mm. So the as you're talking about being a relatable leader, some of the words I'm hearing from you are um, trusted. Uh, understanding in terms of you understand your people, you understand yourself and there's rapport on that basis. And then you just said something very interesting at the end that you don't hear all the time. So yes, all of that is, I want to be influential, but I also want to be influenced, which I found to be a very powerful statement. So I'm curious if you could Elaborate on that a little bit for us when it comes to, and I know I'm jumping around in the book, but you said it just now. I got to, I got to tackle that one. Cause that's just so powerful. It's not just about being influential. It's about being influenced by our teams and by the people that we're leading. Why is that so important? And what does that look like? I would love to hear Marissa's point of view on this, but I wanted to um, uh, real quick kind of summarize my uh, personal uh, belief on that. And that is that, um, without uh, opening yourself up to uh, be influenced and learn from others, you wouldn't really grow as, as a more um, relatable leader, if you wish, or, or a better leader, because there's so much more to learn from the experiences of others, from, from the life stories and the lessons that they've had. Um, and I typically say that to my students, I teach um, adult learners. Um, and so in my classroom, I'm more of a coach uh, and a mentor. I facilitate that conversation um, for them to share their experiences because just imagine how much more we can learn collectively from each other and build these mental type of models um, and frameworks so that we can expand on our uh, personal experiences if you allow them to share their own personal lessons. Uh, at project management, we have something called lessons learned after every project, which we have to conduct this type of um, um, a meeting and learn the types of lessons from, you know, whether it was a successful or troubled or a failed project. 
Um, and so um, I see that uh, individuals um, are these, uh, if you wish, um, um, data banks of knowledge that, that they carry with them. And I'm, I'm passionate about learning about who they are. And if I don't open myself up to be more uh, uh, influenced by them and learn from them, I wouldn't grow as a better relatable leader and I wouldn't be able to touch the lives of others. So that is why it's important for me to also be influenced by others and to be open to do that. Mm, but, and we have so many project managers I know who listen to the show. Uh, so there you've got every person on your team as a walking project lessons learned opportunity to be better. Marissa, I'm curious your take on that one. Um, well, and one of the facets of relatability is that relatable leaders view um, leadership as non-hierarchical. So about the learning from others being influenced by others, it's it's not about finding like the right answer with leadership development. It's more about willing being willing to have a conversation, uh, to critically think and share our ideas. But mostly it's about gathering other people's ideas um, and analyzing like why they feel the way they feel so that you can better understand how to have effective conversations with them. And, and I mean, as a former teacher, uh, actually, I still teach. I don't know why I said former, but as a former high school teacher, I was constantly learning from my students. And so when you, when you view leadership as non-hierarchical, one of the things that happens is you start learning how other people have experiences. And I always joke about how I run as expertly as a fish climbs a tree because the fish climbing the tree is that that one analogy that's always out there to show that everybody has special skill sets and talents. And when you cultivate those, everybody succeeds. So, so I think one of the things that I love about how Simon mentioned being influenced by others is for relatable leaders to know when that needs to take place. Like if I'm going to go again, running, I'm going to listen to somebody who has more experience with running than I would to somebody who has never run before. So, so that's my take on it. So tapping into those moments where we really do need people's perspectives who have more wisdom experience um, than maybe we do. And I think it's interesting as well, some of the big, at least I'm speaking for myself here, sometimes some of the bigger opportunities for me it's easy for me to ask for input on something I don't know that much about. When I feel like I have expertise, that's when it becomes more challenging and even more important for me to really seek out differing perspectives because I may feel like my knowledge goes deep, but I may be very limited in the scope of that uh, for, you know, for all kinds of different reasons. How do you find in a practical sense, leaders who are, you know, everybody's stressed for time. There's all these results that have to be achieved and everything else. And it's like, okay, okay, I hear you. I need to be influenced. I need to get other perspectives. How do I do that realistically? We do touch on five um, key characteristics of what uh, a relatable leader should be. And uh, uh, it also we already talked about the starting lines, uh, but um, there's a thing called uh, being able to increase your cultural agility. And that happens through um, expanding your knowledge of uh, not only your um, organizational culture, for example, but the, the culture of, of your peers, 
um, the culture or the, or, the, or the countries they're coming from. If you're working on a virtual teams, um, understanding the culture in, in those particular countries that these individuals are connecting from, or even the, their local communities and the practices in there. Uh, and so uh, you mentioned that sometimes we are really um, in a situation when we have to deal with uh, crunch time and uh, uh, impossible deadlines. Uh, and in those situations, you know, I typically say to, to my students and in, in, in the past, my colleagues is to just breathe and um, take a moment to reflect on your situation. Um, as a project manager, very frequently, uh, especially in the technology field where I practice quite a bit, um, we were asked to deliver solutions uh, by certain dates. We had uh, quite a bit of time constraint projects, which you know, sometimes we had the resources, but we died by a certain date. If we didn't deliver a solution by that date, uh, we weren't going to succeed. And so interestingly enough, we would kill ourselves to deliver that system. We'll work uh, overtime on the weekends, uh, like you said, you know, constantly busy, not paying attention to our families or each other. Um, came together, collaborated, finished the job. And at the end of the day, nobody remembered how quickly we delivered the system, but everybody remembered how good it worked. Um, so if we delivered a product that was very poorly crafted, uh, which was a reflection sometimes of the culture of the organization in which we operated, um, then everybody remembered that the system didn't do this or the solution didn't do that. Um, and then that idea of a timeline, that deadline, it just kind of fizzled out in the minds of individuals, which was so important to us at the time. Um, and so as a relatable leader, uh, what we really want to focus on is not so much on that deadline, even though our supervisors or senior managers or executives are so much focused on these types of deadlines, but with the, uh, the overall impact of that solution on the value we're delivering to our customers, which is not constrained by time. Sure, we may not deliver a product uh, by a certain deadline on the market and we may actually lose the market share. And that in some instances could be terrible. Uh, but at the same time, uh, over the long period of time, when we're looking at a product um, that has stood the test of time and uh, loyalty has been built around it or service for that matter. It's not so much how quickly it was delivered, but it was whether it was really, really of a high uh, uh, quality. And that is kind of indicative of uh, an organization where the work between the individuals that delivered that particular product or service really uh, was um, indicative of, of a good collaboration, of a strong culture, of, of, of a pride, uh, of an influence, uh, and of lessons learned among each other that they could actually build something that's really good. And you can go back in history and look at all types of products and services from the past that really um, lots of business schools and other schools um, hail them as, as, as examples of great culture, uh, great leadership, um, and it's paying attention to the individuals and, and focusing on the fact that individuals are making mistakes if you impose timelines on them and deadlines. Um, and so you need to find a way as a leader to step back, allow them to work together. And that's uh, something that we're finding quite a bit now in the agile um, uh, uh, methodology of delivering projects is where ideally our, the leaders step back. All they're concerned about is removing any type of uh, barriers for the team to complete their work. 
that's the entire role of a leader is to focus on how can I help you deliver better uh, and remove any type of ob obstacles uh, so that you can do uh, the, the job that you need to do based on your skills and expertise, because that's what you were hired to do. Um, so I, you know, that's kind of a, a lengthy description, but I think it paints a good picture about uh, what it really truly means to uh, be a leader and not really act from that whole idea of the leadership uh, style and the theories from the fifties where, you know, you have to be uh, very transactional, very, very stern, very, very kind of a take charge kind of guy. We live in a different uh, uh, time now. We need different economy, uh, different uh, change and challenges and complexities that necessitate us to step back as leaders and allow the people that are working with us to shine through their skills, uh, to deliver on, on what they have in terms of knowledge and experience rather than us trying to lead the way with what was done back then. <laughs> Absolutely. It's definitely the, the realities of change that you describe and the, the changing needs of the workforce and the changing culture that we exist in. Um, that's definitely that change is happening. It's underway and you can see it uh, farther along in some organizations than others. I think one of the challenges that some of the leaders listening to the show have, and I know because they ask, you know, is that they, they hear the way that you're talking, Simon, and when you're talking about being a relatable leader, Marissa, and that's not necessarily the broader culture that they're operating within. And yet they want to have that approach for their team and for and, and being like the kind of leader who is here, I am here to support you. I'm here to remove the obstacles and together we're going to achieve this. And there is the deadline and where we have this level of accountability for results and quality and all the rest. And you and I know in the presence of really good relationship and trust, all of that is more likely to happen. Do you have any suggestions for leaders who are listening to you saying, yeah, I want to be a relatable leader. That's definitely how I'm trying to do things. And I want to read your book and I want to get the other steps. And we're going to go into a few of those in a moment. And the culture I'm in isn't necessarily supportive of that or doing it itself. What can I do in that kind of environment? What are some of the steps I should take? I think one of the things that your listeners could benefit from is thinking that if leadership has a relationship with influence, then who has the best chance of influencing the widest range of people? Relatable leaders. And since time is our most valuable commodity, then to all the emerging leaders and established ones, um, they need to just commit to making their leadership development an ongoing process. Like they need to just commit to the fact that it's going to happen every day at every moment at and, and any time. And they just make that a part of themselves. Like Simon was um, speaking with one of some friends of ours over dinner and he talked about a behavioral shift. And I think when that happens, then, then those deadlines aren't, they are still important, but when we realize that it's, and I don't want to say like human commodity, but it's like, it's the human factor. It's like, you don't lead tasks. You don't lead, you know, products, you lead humans. And so when you, when you get down to the fact that, you know, we're dealing with people every day and that's like a whole, and I know it's kind of like a societal shift in the way that you view things, but when that becomes the priority, then all the other stuff kind of just, 
it's still there, but it's not the forefront. It's not the instinctual reaction. Like we're on deadline. We got to do this. It's, it's like, yeah, okay. Like what, how can we make this happen? And it's better planning. It's, it's better. It's a better understanding of what your team already has and what your team needs. Like Simon was saying, removing the obstacles. And when that becomes an ongoing process, it becomes like not a, a habit, but a routine like that. It just becomes ingrained in you. And that's the authentic piece of relatable of relatable leadership is it becomes authentic for you to put that other person first, for you to put the team first, for you to put, and then suddenly everything else starts falling into place. Mm-hmm. When, when we talk about trust, one of the, and I'm, I'm channeling a question that we get almost every program we ever deliver when you know, talking to people who, again, listen to the show, they're, they're leading in organizations everywhere from frontline on up to CEO. Uh, and when we talk about trust, one of the critical factors of trust is, do I believe that you have my best interests at heart? Uh, and you have all the research around trust, that one leverages everything else. You can be credible, reliable, uh, we can be connected, but if I don't believe that you have my best interest at heart, the rest of it is diminished. If I believe that you really do have my best interest at heart, that is a leverage, a multiplier for trust. And factoring into this conversation about relatable leadership, one of the questions that we frequently get, so I'm curious how you would answer it, is, okay, I want to have that person's best interest at heart, but what I am accountable for in the organization is producing this outcome. If I don't produce this outcome, I don't have my job. And I care about them and I want to keep their best interest at heart. And really on some level, I'm supposed to prioritize this outcome. Granted, I hear you saying we want to create different organizations and we're as we're working towards that. And that's a, um, a day-to-day challenge that I know that people have on this topic. So I'm curious as as you would be coaching someone who might be in a situation like that, who says, yes, I want to put people first. And how do I do that? What I've got to hit this objective first, whatever that might be. And I'm not seeing my way around how to communicate that. I actually care about that for the other person. Can I jump in here first? Absolutely. Simon, do you mind? I know Oh yeah. Well, only because I have, I have kind of a, and I don't want to name names because I'm, all about positivity, removing negativity from my life. But I have this um, perfect example <laughs> of exactly what you're asking. And so there's a couple different sides to this. One is the, the emerging leader and one is the established leader. So the emerging leader coming up that's kind of caught in the middle, that's at that supervisory role that is given you know, the promotion and has the team and wasn't able to kind of cherry pick who they're, they're on. So this conversation came from that where you know, she was like, I want to love my team, but I can't stand this one person. She always has an excuse. The rest of the team's always covering for her. And so emerging leaders have a really difficult time with employing that compassionate communication piece where there's like, they have this person and they're like, you know, I know you have a lot going on. I know whatever. So what we were discussing in conversation and it wasn't like a coaching session, but it kind of, it was a coaching session in, a, in the way that we were discussing the scenario and how to respond was you may not be able to pick that person like that saying you can't choose your family, but you can pick your friends. So you can't always choose who's on your team. 
But if she's going to commit to that role of being that supervisor and she wants to be a relatable leader, she wants to be the best relatable leader she can be, she's going to dig deep inside of her and find that com compassionate communication. Because we always say, you can't teach empathy, but you can teach compassion. And so find out where that teammate or where that team member, why that team member is failing or lacking, and maybe they're just not in the right role. And then as that leader, take it upon themselves to be like, where can we best fit you within this organization? Or how can we best reestablish your role in this organization so that you are comfortable doing the job you need to do in a way that makes everybody successful? Because I mean, there may be some organizations like this, but I don't think people go into work every day wanting to see other people fail. I mean, you'd have to be pretty nasty or a terrible person to, gotta be a very, to be very like, you know what, person. I'm going to go in and I'm going to make typos so that my coworker, you know, is something like this. So, so this is what we say to the emerging leaders, to the established leaders. It's a little different because I mean, I, it took me a long time to get to where I am now, where I actually, and I remember the first time I had to interview somebody to be my literary assistant, I was like, Oh, it was a pretty daunting experience because you're judging character. You're trying to hire for an attitude that if you're not a good judge of character, it's really hard to get. But the established leaders, they've been there. They know how to cherry pick. And they, they are the ones that I would say, you know, if you're looking and, you, and you're struggling with that, then there's this great thing that Simon Sinek says about like, we do business with people who believe what we believe. And a piece of that is mentioned in our book about cultural agility because how do we get along in this global digital landscape with people who don't believe what we believe? I mean, I I think I'm working well uh, in the literary agency, of course, with all my authors. You know, we've got like hundreds of authors, and they're all over the globe. So I know for a fact I don't believe they all don't believe what I believe. Um, and that's the piece of cultural agility where if you get more experiences, you'll get more comfortable. You'll be able to take on. But the first piece is that you. If she's going to take on that role as a supervisor, she wants to be a better leader. You have to care for people. And, and that's also something in the book. I know I was rambling there, but it says like the one of the prerequisites is you have to care. And so to people who don't care, I would just say, please step back and let those others come forward and care. So that was my long rambling. Well, I can't, I can't high five you because we're, you know, we're <laughs> virtual, but uh, yeah, it's uh, put it out there is, and that is, you know, I know somebody's like, wait a minute, was Marissa, was that compassionate communication saying, hey, if you don't care, step back and let the people who do lead? No, that's compassionate communication. It, just like it is when you have somebody, as Marissa, as you were saying, who's not a good fit for the role and you've done all of the things to help them get there. And it's clear now that this is not a good match. It's compassion to help them move to a different role. And if that different role doesn't exist in the organization, it's compassion to help them move to a different role out of the organization, but you're still doing it from a sense of caring. We are talking with Dr. Marissa Cleveland and Dr. Simon Cleveland about their new book, There Is No Box, A Practical Guide for the Relatable Leader. And I've got another question for you, but uh, before we go there, can you tell us where we can connect with you, where we can find the book, uh, anything else that you might want us to know in terms of links or places to visit? Simon, definitely on LinkedIn. That's the, the best way. Um, I think we have a website, which is in the front cover of the book, um, but we're on Instagram and it's very easy. It's just, there is no box. So <laughs> we, we had that handle from like when it first, when Instagram first came on. So that's, I think the easiest way. And there's a, a link in the bio for where you can find the book. Um, if you just go to 
Penguin Random House, you can search it. You can search our, our name and the book will come up. There is no box, but there is an Instagram. I love it. Oh, <laughs> very good. Run with that one. Uh, I get, I, I could, I could have fun with those all day. Okay. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned, and by the way, we'll get all those links on the, on the show notes and everything so that you can connect with uh, Marissa and Simon. Uh, earlier in the show and in the book, your fifth way to cultivate being a relatable leader, you talk about non-hierarchical leadership, that, that relatable leaders view leadership as non-hierarchical. And the reason I wanted to uh, tap into this as the final part of our conversation is because that Again, talking with so many of the leaders we work with, one of the challenges that they face today, and just about anybody in a large organization, and Simon, you were alluding to this earlier, anybody in a large organization, you don't have functional control or responsibility for everyone or every resource it takes to succeed. And that's like to the power of three for project managers, but that's true for just about any leader in, in a large organization. So let's Walk us through what does non-hierarchical leadership look like and how do you do it well? Um, I'm going I'm to briefly talk about this and I would love to hear Marissa's uh, follow up on this. But um, if you uh, think about the importance of being authentic, for example, uh, to who you truly are, um, and not only at work, but at home with your family, with your community, uh, and that's why uh, we always talk about a behavior shift uh, as becoming a relatable leader. It's um, you transform to act, uh, behave um, uniformly, uh, not just at work in one particular way, but the same way as your family and your community. Um, and how do you uh, earn other people's trust? Um, and how do you trust others is if you see that uniform behavior um, from the moment they walk into the office to the moment they leave continuously. They do not flip-flop. They do not adjust to, um, uh, you know, expectations one way or another in terms of behavior. You would always be confident and comfortable working with these types of individuals because you would not have a Jekyll and Hyde um, at any moment. And so uh, you can uh, comfortably develop a relationship knowing that um, you can navigate that relationship with them um, because this is who they are and they will always be that way. Granted, they should be uh, obviously positive and, and relatable to the, to the situation. So um, when we talk about non-hierarchical, you know, leadership begins with not only uh, your work, but at home uh, and in your community with your friends, uh, behaviorally changing, making sure that uh, you are exposing that personality continuously and it doesn't change us. It, it, it stays the same so that other people can, um, uh, you know, earn uh, or, or grant you their trust uh, and know what to expect. And, and from here on, I'll, I'll let Marissa kind of I'll take it on and, and kind of work more about. Can I just do a, a quick check-in? So what I hear you saying is, is and, and this goes to the statement you made earlier about leadership as a lifestyle. It's that continuity of character and behavior across every aspect of our life. We're not treating people on our team differently than we're treating people in the community or our family or uh, on a committee that we serve or any of that sort of thing. We're consistent. That's right. Okay. That's right. Marissa? 
Um, well, I have another example <laughs> based on uh, one of Simon's former people on his team. So she comes into work, she has a title, she does her work. It's not, you know, anything like a CEO. So she just kind of does her thing. And then I found out when we were out at some work social event that she's actually like the leader of the Girl Scout troop for her family. And so I'm like, that's really cool. Did you know that? And that was actually the first time that Simon was like, well, I mean, different people can be leaders in different aspects. Like it's just because they're in this role as a job doesn't mean they can't be leaders elsewhere. And that's when I first actually started looking at like community leaders. When I was like, hey, you know, that softball coach that's the dad is just, you know, he's a programmer. He's not like a manager, but he's still a leader there. And so that is kind of where the non-hierarchical stem from, where Simon was telling me like, well, I, I expect, and, and also like, and she ended up telling me that, like he, he expected her to just take charge of her role, like th at that level of autonomy where, you know, something, some, she was doing something and she has to make decisions and she can come to him and report. And so a lot of like, what is part of that chapter was from what I observed of him working with this project management team where I was like, and the other thing is that it's really interesting because until we co-wrote a book, I had never really been project managed before. And he totally project managed me into this. He's like, here's the Gantt chart. Here's the word count. Here's when we're going to. And I was like, oh, wow. And I found out project managers are caught in that middle space where they're, they have to lead a team, but they also have to manage these tasks, but they have no official authority over anything. And so I'm just like, how are you doing this? And it's like, and the really good directors and project sponsors they understand that they're like, well, we trust our project managers. We don't need a separate PMO office because we know our project managers can step into those roles. And we know that the people around them understand that leadership can come from anywhere in the organization. You can be a leader if, you know, no matter who you are, you take charge. And, and that's part of the reason why in early in the book, Simon said to me, like, you're the CEO of your life. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I am. I make all the decisions for myself, you know? And so that's my take on the few leadership is non-hierarchical is that, you know, there can be leaders throughout an organization anywhere at any level And the job title doesn't define whether they're a leader or not. Final question. Uh, I want to ask both of you on this note about non-hierarchical leadership and you can be a leader from anywhere is as people are listening to the show and thinking about the specific places they need to lead non-hierarchically. In other words, I need to be influential with my peers and colleagues and that other department that's always, gosh, kind of a pain, but I really do need to work together well with them in order to achieve the results we're, we're all trying to do. Or I'm in a very matrixed organization where there are dotted lines in every direction and it's not like any one person's accountable for everything. And sometimes we're actually working at cross purposes because we have different priorities and different outcomes we're working towards. And yet I still need their help and they need mine. If you had one suggestion for leaders in terms of how to be a relatable leader in those circumstances, what might that be? Well, I uh, always go back to uh, know, that, know thyself. The famous uh, saying is that um, it, this may be uh, your first situation where you are experiencing this, but it may not be. 
um, and fall, fall back on uh, work, work, what worked in the past um, and then um, be authentic. I mean, you know, follow your true character, uh, use those lessons that you've learned if it's worked, if it's not, um, take some of these uh, lessons that we project in our book, There Is No Box, uh, certainly will help you uh, advance and, uh, and deal with some of these challenges that, that uh, you may be facing. Uh, and also rely on the recommendations and advice of the people that you really trust because uh, they have gone through that experience in the past or uh, they are probably better observers than you are in terms of character or knowing their starting lines and you have quite a bit to learn from others. So listen to them and, tr and trust them uh, and then you'll be, you'll be fine. That's that what in essence is a relatable leader, really. Thank you. Marissa. Yeah, and just to touch on that, um, I think those leaders, once they come to the understanding of what relatability is, and they've seen the five strategies, they can, they'll can they understand that there is no one way to make something happen um, or to make it, like whatever that means. Like success is going to look different for everyone. I mean, obviously at the end of the day, a deliverable is a deliverable, but I, like um, the Patagonia founder, I, I love that quote. He says something like, it's not it's not the attainment of the summit, it's the style of the climb. And so it's really how, how do you feel about yourself getting to where you need to be? And even if you have that department that is just at cross purposes, or, you know, two, if you're stuck in that middle management and you've got this two directors that are purposely trying to not let something roll out the way that it needs to or whatever, just as the relatable leader to just take a moment to understand that like, you're never too late, like you're never too old and it's never too late for you to try to achieve your goals in different ways. Like you're not stuck on that one track of trying to make it work between two people that will, it will never work with. So if, if you can understand that there's not one path to get to where you need to be, then you've opened up the door for listening to other pathways that may still get you to that successful point kind of like on house um that old tv show with that diagnostician doctor where he had to have different people from different like he needed a female he needed you know different doctors on his team um i remember that episode where she was like you have to hire somebody you know to be on your team so that you get those different perspectives and that comes back to the non-hierarchical again where you're listening to people who maybe you wouldn't think to listen to but because they're looking at your situation from a different perspective, they'll be like, hey, you know what, this is what I'm observing. And then as that relatable leader, you can take all that information in and come up with a different solution. And if I were to encapsulate so much of what I hear you saying, it's that you've got to invest in the relationships. You just have to invest in the relationships and truly value the other human being beings that you're working with. All right. We've been talking with doctors Marissa Cleveland, Dr. Simon Cleveland. There is no box, a practical guide for the relatable leader. Uh, Marissa, Simon, thank you so much for being guests on the show today. Thank, thank you David. so much for having us. <laughs> Absolutely. So listeners, you've got uh, different ways to cultivate being a relatable leader. Get practical by knowing your starting line. Know your people's starting lines, where are they coming from? Truly understanding them. Increase your cultural agility. Practice compassionate communication. Uh, embrace that. Uh, lifestyle of leadership, that consistency that, that we talked about. And finally, where are the places to invest in relationships for your non-hierarchical leadership? And be the leader you'd want your boss to be.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.